Hey everyone, so here we go. No script, no notes, completely working without a net here. Uh, before we start, I'd like to thank German AG, I think it is, and Colin Purdy for liking the Weekend Out Facebook page. And I'd also like to thank everyone who recently wished me well via the Weekend Out Facebook page. So it seems that I've come down with a rather bad case of gastroenteritis. Is that how you say it? Uh, I'm feeling too sick and too lazy to bother uh, looking up the proper pronunciation. Uh, and I know you guys are probably sick of hearing me talk about my headaches on the show, which is why I've been trying not to do that. Uh, that and also they've just been kind of getting better in the interim, luckily for the most part. But the night before last, all of a sudden I start experiencing a lot of severe sinus congestion on the right side of my head. The same side that my migraines always occur on. And uh, the congestion kind of seemed to trigger a, a really bad migraine episode. And it got so bad that not to get too graphic, I ended up uh, running to uh, the restroom Although I don't think you really rest in there unless, well, you do kind of sit down sometimes for a while while you do other stuff. But anyway, yeah, so I, I there I, I was trying to clean things up for you. I ended up sounding even more vulgar. So I ran to the bathroom and ended up yakking. And uh, shortly after, I developed a, a severe case of chills and a, a kind of achy, hot feeling at the same time all over my body. And I knew, I'm like, this is not good. Uh, I guess I'm going to the doctor tomorrow. So I did. I went to the doctor the next day and almost passed out in the doctor's office. And I have a, I have a female doctor, so I felt kind of weird. Although I know I shouldn't. She's a physician. Uh, she's probably seen cadavers and everything. So she could probably stomach looking at my pale naked torso, I hope. Uh, I started to feel like overwhelmed by this really hot flushed feeling to the point where I thought I was gonna lose consciousness so I just started like ripping off my clothes I'm like oh is it all right if I take my sweatshirt off and I'm like peeling off my layers I'm like splashing water on my face from the sink in the the doctor's uh, office and uh almost fainted and um so she checked me out and it, said, it turned out that I was severely dehydrated and it seemed like I was suffering from a bad case of gastroenteritis. A bad case of gastroenteritis. Is that what it is? I'm still not looking it up. So uh, um, they were going to um, hook me up to an IV to try to rehydrate me. But I guess the nurse who does that wasn't around at the time. So they just sent me home with a bottle of water. Well, actually, I had to get a lab test done first. So they they drew my blood, had me hang out for a while till I felt like I wasn't going to faint any longer and could properly operate my motor vehicle. Um, and then I got a call today and the doctor said they had found like high levels of urea or whatever it is uh, in my blood, which... Um, supposedly indicates, uh, you know, severe dehydration. And they also found indications of some kind of acute infection. Actually, nothing cute about it. That was a horrible joke. Give me a break. I'm like on the edge of delirium here trying to do a podcast. I was almost going to do this podcast naked, 
that's how hot I felt a little bit ago, uh, how kind of hot and feverish this, this was going to be a first and weakened out history, a naked podcast. I probably could have gotten away with it since it's audio only. Uh, but then just as quickly, all of a sudden I got like, uh, I started feeling, um, cold and, and, uh, the chills had returned. So, uh, I, even though you can't see me, uh, my modesty is intact. I am in fact, uh, fully garbed at this time. So, uh, so anyway, um, since the inauguration of Donald Trump, I'm trying to get serious here. There's been a, a slew of news stories that have come out that I wanted to cover. Many of them having to do with abortion rights and uh, the separation of church and state. But then just a couple of days ago, I listened to the most recent episode of Sam Harris's Waking Up podcast. And his guest was Jordan Peterson, kind of um, a controversial individual. Uh, I believe he's a Canadian professor. I think he might be a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Now, this probably is the type of thing I should look up. So, yeah, he's a, a clinical psychologist and tenured professor of psychology at the University of Toronto. And the reason why it's considered controversial, for those of you who don't spend a lot of time on YouTube, uh, you might not be aware of just how drastic the schism is that's divided the online atheist community, at least on um, YouTube. So for a while now, there's been this big divide. On the one hand, you have... Um, what some people refer to as the SJWs, the social justice warriors. I try not to throw uh, epithets or pejoratives around. I try to let my arguments do the talking, and I try to be uh, as polite and respectful as I can be. So, uh, you, so you don't really hear me much using terms like social justice warrior, even though I have explained here and there in the past how I, I don't really hide my contempt for political correctness. Uh, I don't like thought police. I don't like speech police, uh, that type of thing. And, and, and basically, social justice warrior is a pejorative for what seem um, to some as people on the far left who have taken political correctness so far that they've kind of gone down the rabbit hole. And in comparison, they kind of make the traditional left look almost right. You know what I mean? And some have even taken to calling progressives regressives. And I think that's actually a term that was coined by Majid Nawaz, um, a, a kind of a, a Muslim reformer who uh, is a friend and colleague of uh, Sam Harris's. They, they started out as, as enemies to some extent, but actually... Um, ended up uh, becoming friendly and even authoring a book together. And then on the other side of the divide, you have the people who are kind of reacting against that movement or sentiment and who are vehemently kind of anti-political correctness. Uh, you know, you have people like Sargon of Akkad, uh, etc. These people who are always doing stories about quote-unquote social justice warriors and, and what they see as political correctness run amok on college campuses, etc. And this is stuff I have only touched on here and there very briefly in passing in the past. And um, I have to admit, part of it might be like self-preservation, 
um, I don't want to talk about this stuff because I just don't want to get in the middle of it. I don't want to alienate members of my audience, etc. And don't get me wrong. If it was something I felt really strongly about, I would talk about it whether I thought it was going to uh, alienate myself or others, you know, or cost me listeners uh, either way. Uh, hell, you know, I, I do a podcast that's predominantly geared towards atheists. That's pretty divisive to start out with. And I do feel very passionate when it comes to wrestling with life's big existential questions, um, trying to get at the truth or lack thereof of certain faith claims, trying to shine a light on the man-made nature of religion. I take, you know, I try to have fun, but I take my existence and existence in general seriously enough that I don't want to live it with my eyes closed. I want the real answers. I want to find out the truth as close as one can humanly get in a moral lifetime of, of finding the answers to things like whether or not there's an afterlife or a God. You know, I feel very passionately about those things. Social justice, um, what is or isn't going on on college campuses regarding political correctness and whatnot. I find some of that stuff interesting, and I'll listen to other podcasters and YouTubers talk about it, but it doesn't really light my fire personally, and there I am quoting the doors. Um, you know what I mean? So it's not something I really care about, and if it's something I don't care about but could get me into trouble, I try to stare clear of it. You know what I mean? And I just stick to what I'm passionate about once again, which is atheism and religion, etc. Um, so Jordan Peterson is kind of a champion for the anti-PC, anti-social justice warrior crowd. And that's what really makes him kind of controversial. But that's not what caught my attention regarding his recent interview with Sam Harris. The episode was nearly two hours long, and you guys think I can be long-winded sometimes. And, and literally only about 20 or 25 minutes of that episode was dedicated to the topic of political correctness and social, quote-unquote, social justice, etc. The lion's share, almost the entirety of the episode, was dedicated to discussing the nature of truth. How do we define truth? What is and what isn't true, etc. And I'm already a big Sam Harris fan, and this... Uh, Listening to this this kind of circular pissing match or whatever, and I don't say that to denigrate Sam, but basically they were just arguing the same points kind of over and over again for almost two hours. But I thought, nevertheless, Sam handled himself in a very rational and insightful manner. And so I gained even further respect for Sam Harris after this episode. And especially when juxtaposed with Jordan Peterson. And I'm not trying to put the guy down. He's obviously a, a very intelligent and learned guy. Uh, e even somewhat, uh, you know, affable and likable in his own strange way. Once again, hopefully that, that didn't come off as a thinly veiled um, insult. I'm kind of, you know, once again, working without a net or a script here. But the way that Jordan Peterson defined truth, to me, was just very bizarre. And even though Sam Harris charitably admitted that Peterson's views seem to be based to some degree on the work 
of other philosophers or academics. Sam nevertheless also thought that his definition of what truth is was, you know, really just really bizarre and um, kind of diametrically opposed to what most of us would accept as the logical definition of what truth and facts are. Uh, yeah, I found the whole thing so kind of jaw-droppingly strange. And there were so many moments during the conversation that I wished I could have magically, you know, jumped through my iPhone and into the conversation and added my own two cents. So, hey, I have my own podcast, right? So I figured, why not do it now? And so I have to warn you, I whittled the conversation down to about an hour and 40 minutes. And there's no way I'm going to go that long. So what I'm going to do is as I add my own commentary, as I go along, I'll kind of edit out the bits that I think we can do without and, and try to get it down to a manageable size where hopefully I at least end up staying under the hour uh, long mark with, with this episode. Uh, so without further ado, why don't we start? So here we go. But we, we have bigger, deeper, more perennial fish to fry. I think we need to talk about religion and science and atheism and the foundations of morality, things like meaning, your interest in mythology. And it's funny, they never even get around to discussing any of these other topics, including mythology. And uh, who knows, I may have felt some kinship with Jordan Peterson there because I too love mythology, uh, even though I'm a non-believer. Uh, I'm a huge Joseph Campbell fan. And I think psychologically uh, speaking, I think myths and symbols can be very powerful. Uh, but anyway. Your fear of nihilism. Let's get into all that. I think you and I share some fundamental concerns and we feel a similar kind of urgency. I think it expresses itself in slightly different ways and different ways of talking, but we, we feel an urgency that our fellow human beings get certain questions right. But I, I think we probably disagree about some fundamental matters and whether those will be in the end a matter of semantic difference and can be pushed to the periphery or not. I think that remains to be seen, but I think it will be interesting to talk about these things. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, um, huh, one of the things that I thought I might do is pursue the tack that you're not enough of a Darwinian, which I thought would be quite comical. Um, because I've often thought the same about Richard Dawkins. But I would like to point out some of the things, because I've read I, I've read a fair bit of what you've written now, um, not by no means comprehensively, but I think uh, I've come to understand your, your central claims. And of course, they're very powerful because you're an advocate for materialist rationalism, essentially, I would say, with a bit of spirituality on the side. And, you know, materialist rationalism is an unbelievably powerful tool and it's very coherent and so you know i i i address the topic with trepidation because you know it was certainly the case that the the philosophical doctrine to which you adhere has transformed the world and has posed an unbelievably potent threat let's say that's one way of challenge that's better to traditional views of the world. So, but there are some things that 
that we share in common that maybe we could start with. So, and you tell me if, if I've got any of this wrong. I think a good starting point is this, it actually leads directly into this claim about not being Darwinian enough, but it, it's the concept of truth. I've heard you say in a variety of ways that religious truth isn't scientific truth. And that the difference here is that science tells you what things are and that religion tells you how you should act. And I already don't like that distinction. You know, that sounds all fine and dandy until religion decides to try to get involved in things like determining the age of the earth or whether or not prayer is better than medicine, um, things like that. And of course, there's many religions that openly embrace modern medicine, uh, but there's also dangerous sects out there like quote-unquote Christian science, which promotes the belief that it's somehow inherently sinful to rely on medicine, that it somehow shows a kind of lack of faith or trust in God, and that the righteous, the virtuous thing to do is to eschew medicine, even if you have a sick child who's dying, and opt for waiting for the power of prayer to kick in or for God to do his thing, you know? Um, but I guess the point I was trying to make uh, by using those examples is that there shouldn't be a scientific truth in a, and a religious truth. There should only be the truth, at least factually speaking. Um, the age of the earth is the age of the earth. You know, something's either factually true or it isn't. Sometimes people like to throw the word truth around in this airy-fairy kind of way. You know, is beauty truth? Is truth beauty? That type of thing. Uh, people try to talk about some kind of, you know, higher truth when talking about religion or art and, and this and that. And as someone who loves things like art, poetry, literature, someone who knows what it's like to have quote-unquote transcendent experiences... I kind of know what people are trying to get at with all that, but I think even all that can be traced back to evolution, um, neurochemistry, things like that. And I think even when it comes to certain faith claims, you know, still something is either true or it isn't. Either someone named Jesus or Yeshua, whatever, if he was a historical figure, whatever his name at the time was, Either that person rose bodily from the dead or they didn't. Um, believe it or not, there are competing schools of thought regarding whether or not Jesus experienced a bodily resurrection. Go on YouTube and watch a very interesting debate between William Lane Craig and a bishop by the name of Shelby Spong. Uh, battling over whether or not Jesus rose from the dead physically or not. But for people who believe that Jesus rose from the dead, most Christians believe he rose physically. He either did or he didn't. You know what I mean? I understand this desire to try to separate the two out of some sense of respect or trying to keep the peace. Like, say, okay, science can have its empirical facts and religion can have its higher truths. But still, to me, at the end of the day, something's either factually true or it isn't. So let's talk about that. And I think that does connect to this Darwinian concern of yours. Yeah, that's a good... That Well, um, I'm going to approach that obliquely to begin with. So 
So let me throw a couple of propositions at you. And and I know that you don't accept Hume's distinction between an is and an ought, you know, that you're willing to challenge that. And like, fair enough, you know. Um, I'm not getting into David Hume's is-ought distinction. We'll be here for an extra hour. Uh, Well, to put really simply without trying to really wax philosophical about it, Hume's basic issue was he thought that people argued too much about what ought to be based on what actually is. Anyway. It's a reasonable thing to try to challenge, although it's quite difficult, but but that doesn't mean it's impossible. But I've been thinking a lot about the essential philosophical contradiction between a Newtonian worldview, which I would say your view is nested inside, um, and a Darwinian worldview, because those views are not the same. They're seriously not the same. So Peterson's about to get into the whole Newtonian slash Darwinian divide uh, regarding those two worldviews. Honestly, um, I don't really know all that much about it. I know, I mean, I'm very familiar with Charles Darwin and with Sir Isaac Newton. Obviously, Newton was a brilliant scientist. Uh, Also, although uh, surprisingly many people aren't aware, was also very religious. Spent a great deal of time trying to decipher biblical texts and working on religious mysteries and I think even tinkering with alchemy to some extent. In a sense, I would imagine a lot of that probably had to do with him being a man of his time. Uh, Whereas Darwin, uh, I believe his faith was basically eroded by what he learned and observed while formulating his theory of natural selection. Anyway, let's get back to these eggheads. I mean, the Darwinian view, as the American pragmatists recognized, so that was William James and his crowd, recognized almost, almost immediately was a form of pragmatism. And the pragmatists claim that the truth of a statement or process can only be adjudicated with regards to its efficiency with, with, in, in, attaining, in attaining its aim. And so their idea was that truths are always bounded because we're ignorant. And every uh, action that you undertake that's goal-directed has an internal ethic embedded in it. And the ethic is the claim that if what you do works, then it's true enough. And that's all you can ever do. And so, and what Darwin did, as far as the pragmatists were concerned, was to put forth the following proposition, which was that it was impossible for a finite organism to keep up with a multi-dimensionally transforming landscape, environmental landscape, let's say. And so the best that could be done was to generate random variants, kill most of them because they were wrong, and let the others that were correct enough live long enough to propagate, whereby the same process occurs again. So it's not like the organism is a solution to the problem of the environment. The, The organism is a very bad partial solution to an impossible problem. Okay, and the thing that the thing that about that is that you can't get outside that claim. Now, I can't see how you can get outside that claim if you're a Darwinian, because the Darwinian claim is that the only way to ensure adaptation to the uh, unpredictably transforming environment is through random mutation, essentially, and death. 
and that there is no truth claim whatsoever that can surpass that. And so then that brings me to the next point, if you don't mind, and then I'll shut up and let you and let you talk. Mm. So I was thinking about that, and I thought, thought about that for a long time. So it seems to me there's a fundamental contradiction between Darwin's claims and and the Newton deterministic claim and the and the materialist objective claim that science is true in some final sense. And so I was thinking. And so if I can butt in once again, uh, I'm not a scientist, uh, but as a layman, I do embrace that materialist view that, quote unquote, science is right in some final sense. And I think what I mean by that is that as these uh, limited finite beings, we're kind of groping in the dark, amassing scientific knowledge, uh, revising it at times as uh, new information is discovered. Uh, for instance, um, every once in a while, we might have to add a new element to the periodic table, or uh, we may have to re-crunch some equations or something like that. But even if we don't know or aren't aware of all the basic elements that exist in the universe, um, that doesn't mean that they're not out there. It just means with our limited monkey minds or uh, our lack of um, cosmic exploration, you know, we just haven't discovered them yet. You know, I think that chances are, given the vast, infinite, expanding size of the universe, that most likely there is life elsewhere in the universe. Uh, just because we've never met those other species or races and we, we don't know exactly who or what they are, that doesn't mean that they don't exist. They're still out there. And that reminds me of the X-Files, you know, to borrow... Um, that phrase from uh, Mulder's poster, uh, just because we're not aware of all the scientific truths in the universe, nevertheless, the truth is out there. Those uh, truths still exist. We just haven't stumbled upon them yet. And it already seems like Pearson's doing something weird. He's taking the kind of messy, arduous process of natural selection and trying to apply that to how we determine what is true or what isn't, um, which seems bizarre to me. Of two things that I read, one was the attempt by the KGB back in the, uh, in the late part of the 20th century to hybridize um, smallpox and Ebola and then aerosol it so it could be used on on you know for mass destruction and the thing is is that that's a perfectly valid scientific enterprise as far as i'm concerned it's an interesting problem um you might say well you shouldn't divorce it from the surrounding politics well that's exactly the issue is how much it can be divorced and then and from what and then the second example is you know a scientist with any sense would say, well, you know, our truths are incontrovertible. Let's look at the results. And we could say, well, let's look at the hydrogen bomb. You know, if, if you want a piece of evidence that our theories about the subatomic structure of reality are accurate, you don't really have to look much farther than a hydrogen bomb. It's a pretty damn potent demonstration. And so then I was thinking, well, imagine for a moment that 
the invention of the hydrogen bomb did lead to the outcome, which we were also terrified about in the during the Cold War, which would have been, for the sake of argument, either the total elimination of human life or perhaps the total elimination of life. Now, the latter possibility is quite unlikely, but the former one certainly wasn't beyond comprehension. And so then I would say, well, the proposition that the universe is best conceptualized as subatomic particles was true enough to generate a hydrogen bomb, but it wasn't true enough to stop everyone from dying. And therefore, from a Darwinian perspective, it was an insufficient pragmatic proposition. Yeah, so that's kind of bizarre. I mean, yeah, the scientific principles were true or valid enough that they allowed us to develop the hydrogen bomb. Um, But what does it mean that the science wasn't true enough to keep everyone from being killed? The scientific principles were still sound and valid. It's just the invention itself was a devastating weapon of war. So unless you're going to tweak the definition of true, you know, to, to have these ethical implications, um, I don't really know what he's he's getting at. And, and I think in part, that's what he is doing, uh, admittedly. And was therefore, in some fundamental sense, wrong. And perhaps it was wrong because of what it left out. You know, maybe it's wrong in the Darwinian sense to reduce the complexity of being to um, a material substrate and forget about the surrounding context. So, well, you know, those are two examples. And so you can have a way at that if you want. Yeah, okay. So there are a few issues here that I think we need to pull apart. I think that the basic issue here and where I disagree with you is you seem to be equivocating on the nature of truth here. You're using truth in two different senses and finding a contradiction that I, that I don't, in fact, think exists. So let's talk about, about pragmatism and Darwinism briefly for a second. So I've spent a lot of time in the, the thicket of, of pragmatism because I was a student of Richard Rorty's at Stanford. Good for you. Kidding. Huge Sam Harris fan. Save the hate mail. Okay. And I took every class he taught and just basically did nothing but argue with him about pragmatism. So I'm very familiar with this way of viewing the concept of scientific truth. I'm not so sure our audience is deeply schooled in this. So briefly, let me just add a little to how you describe pragmatism. And this is, you know, Rorty was one of the leading lights of pragmatism, as, as you know. So this, his view may be slightly idiosyncratic, but it was fairly well subscribed among pragmatists. And he was influenced by Dewey. And he linked his view in some similar ways to, to a Darwinian conception of truth, but not quite the way you're doing, it seems to me. In any case, the idea is that we can never stand outside of human conversation and talk about reality as it is, or truth as it is. We never, we never come into contact with naked truth. All we have is our conversation and our tools of augmenting our conversation scientific instruments and otherwise. And all we really have, the the currency of of truth, is whatever successfully passes muster in a conversation. So I say something that I think is true, and it seems to work for you. We have a similar, we're playing a similar language game. 
And some people disagree, they criticize what we are, are claiming to be true, and we go back and forth. And all we ever have is this kind of ever-expanding horizon line of successful conversations that allow us to do things technologically that are very persuasive. So as you say, we can build hydrogen bombs. And so the conversation about the structure of the atom, at the very least, the conversation about the amount of energy hidden in the otherwise nebulous structure of an atom, that becomes you know, very well grounded in facts that we, that we all can agree are, are intersubjectively true. Yeah, well, that seems to that seems to weaken the claim that it's just within language, you know, which is kind of a postmodern claim too, because it's very difficult for me to believe that the hydrogen bomb is what it is just because we agree what it is in conversation. You know, it, Absolutely, it immediately yeah. reflects a world outside of now that outside of language. That doesn't mean we we get permanent and omniscient access to that world, but but it's more than language as far as. So maybe I'm misunderstanding Rorty or, or um... I think you're you are understanding him. He just he will say that again, all we ever have is our effort to organize the way the world seems to us with concepts and language, and we just have successful iterations of that and unsuccessful ones. And a hydrogen bomb explosion, no matter how big, assuming we survive it, still falls within this empirical context of an evolving language game. And I agree with you that this does, it does connect with postmodernism in a way that is decidedly unhelpful. And, and Rorty was a fan of Derrida and Foucault. And, you know, I remember walking out of Derrida's lecture at Stanford, I literally had to, to climb over the bodies of the credulous who were sitting in the aisles listening to the great man speak, and he didn't speak a single intelligible sentence, as far as I recall. Well, that's obviously just because you don't have the profundity to understand, uh, you know, a postmodern French neo-Marxist intellectual. I don't. But to get back to some of your claims here, there's this claim you're making about the Darwinian basis of truth and knowledge, that there really is just survival, right? There's just, you know, biological change selected against by an environment. And there's what works in that context, what is pragmatic in that context biologically, and there's what doesn't and what doesn't gets you killed. Yeah. Now, obviously, that picture of, of how we got here is something that I agree with. Right. But our conception of truth and our conception of truth in general and scientific truth specifically, and, and even of Darwinian evolution within that subset of truth claims, that is not functioning by merely Darwinian principles. And this just goes to... Right, but that, that could be an objection to its validity. Like, there's no reason to assume, and, and I, don't get me wrong, like, I'm perfectly happy with science, I'm a scientist, and... Um, but there's no reason to assume that our our view of the world, our current scientific view of the world, isn't flawed or incomplete in some manner that will prove fundamentally fatal to us. As a working assumption, we can decide not to worry too much about that, and that's fine. But yes, I agree, and more fundamental than that, and I think this is the accurate version of the claim you're making. This is something that I, I spoke about on another podcast with Max Tegmark, a physicist from MIT. The, there is just the fact that within the Darwinian conception of how we got here, there's no reason to believe that our cognitive faculties 
have evolved to put us in error-free contact with reality. That's not how they evolved. I mean, we did not evolve to be perfect mathematicians or perfect logical operators or perfect conceivers of scientific reality at the very small, you know, subatomic level or at the very large cosmic level or at the very old cosmological level. We are designed by the happenstance of evolution to function within a very narrow band of, of light intensities and physical parameters. The things we are designed to do very well are, you know, recognize the facial expressions of apes just like ourselves and to throw objects in parabolic arcs within a hundred meters and, and all of that. And so right. the fact that we are able to succeed to the degree that we have been in creating a vision of scientific truth and the structure of the cosmos at large that radically exceeds those narrow parameters, that is a, it's a kind of miracle. Uh-oh, Sam said the M word. Just kidding. Uh -huh. Yeah, so basically Sam is saying what I did in, in a much more eloquent and thorough kind of way that, yeah, being these kind of limited, finite, biological creatures who evolved to basically propagate our genes, um, our ability to understand the cosmos or the reality around us may very well in some ways be limited, but it doesn't change what is factual and what isn't. Early man may not have been able to see the surface of Mars or may not have been aware of the dinosaur fossils that were deep in the earth under their feet, but it doesn't mean that those things didn't exist. Just because you're not aware of something doesn't mean that it isn't true or doesn't exist. It's an amazing fact about us that seems not to be true remotely true of any other species we know about. And that's that's something to be celebrated, and it's a lot of fun to see how far we can get in that direction. But I would grant you that there are no guarantees as we move forward in that space. And in fact, we should be skeptical about how easy we can have it in this space. Yes. One thing that Max Tegmark said, which I thought was fascinating. He, he goes one step further than I had tended to go along these lines, where he said that we should expect, as just based on accepting the, the logic of evolution, we should expect that we will have our common sense intuitions frequently and really incessantly violated by what we discover to be true about the nature of reality through science. Yeah, what we discover scientifically to be yeah. true about the nature of reality. Yeah, well, so so partly I made the case that I made to indicate to you and the listeners where I'm starting from in some sense. So I think it's not unreasonable to assume that you're making the metaphysical claim in some sense that Darwinian truth is nested inside Newtonian truth. I wouldn't call it Newtonian. Let me just change your words a little bit, but it may be a distinction without a difference here. But I would oppose realism, scientific realism, and even moral realism. I consider myself a moral realist. I think there are right and wrong answers to moral questions. I would oppose realism with pragmatism. And the core tenet of realism yeah. for me is 
that it's possible for everyone to be mistaken. It's possible for there to be a consensus around truths that are in fact not true. It's possible to not know what you're missing. There's a horizon of cognition beyond which we can't currently see, and we may be right or wrong about what we think exceeds our grasp at the moment. And so that's, that's something that the pragmatist can't say. The pragmatist has to locate truth always within the context of existing conversations, existing consensus. And in this Darwinian conception of truth, you are saying that there's just what works for us biologically, pragmatically, as apes on earth now. And there is nothing, there's no larger context of truth claims that we can make that situates that in a, in a larger sphere where you can intelligibly say that everyone is wrong about something. Well, it's complicated. And I wouldn't say I'm saying exactly that. Um, I certainly don't agree with the language game part of it. Um, and see, if you, if you think of the Darwinian process as something you can't escape, like there's no outside of it. And partly the reason for that is that you're just too damn ignorant to, to get outside of it in any, in any transcendent manner. Now, you might say, well, you can do that to some degree with science. And I'm not going to argue with that. But, but before you move on, let me just understand the claim, because it seems to me we are outside of it in every respect where you want to emphasize the Darwinian component of it. So we're, we're outside of the implications that, you know, certain phenotypes would have killed you outright 5,000 years ago, whereas now we have a civilizational mechanism to protect those people. So if you're wearing eyeglasses and you, you are able to function just as well as your neighbor who's got perfect vision, you're out of a Darwinian paradigm there. It doesn't matter that you're wearing eyeglasses, right? On a thousand points, we can make that same observation. And therefore, more or less everything we care about has followed along those lines. I mean, so just the fact that we are, you know, one of the greatest gains we are attempting to make, although we, we have done it imperfectly thus far, is to outgrow tribalism in all its forms, right? So we, we recognize that tribalism is not the best, you know, moral bedrock. And yet, in a Darwinian paradigm, tribalism is really the only game in town. And so we stand outside of Darwinian logic, both morally and intellectually, all the time now. Are you denying that? What am I confused about? I'm calling that into question. I'm, I'm not necessarily denying it, and I'm certainly not presuming that you know, that what I'm saying is right, because I'm trying to solve another problem at the same time. But you see, the thing about the scientific viewpoint is that it leaves certain things out. And it leaves out what it doesn't know, obviously, although the same might be said for any other system of belief and should be. But it also looks at the world in a particular way. For example, it strips the world of its subjectivity. and it may be that that's a fatal error. Now, that doesn't mean that it stopped science from being unbelievably useful as a tool. But I think of science as a tool rather than as a description of reality. I would describe it as both. I think science is both a tool and a description of reality, albeit an incomplete description of reality. Uh, but it doesn't mean that the puzzle pieces that we've amassed and fit together so far aren't at least uh, valid to some large extent, I would imagine. Uh, in other words, we might not have the whole picture, 
yet. We might not ever have the whole picture, but that doesn't mean what we have of the picture so far is uh, invalid, at least not completely. And, you know, that's, well, that's where we differ. And, and it's f- fair that we differ. You know, it's, it isn't obvious which of those two positions could be held to be correct. Because, you know, you could say that the more we learn about the objective world, you know, in your realist manner, the higher the probability that we'll survive. And it's conceivable that those things are aligned in that manner. But it's also conceivable that they're not. And I'm uh, wary of that because radical changes produce unintended consequences. And, you know, we've lived relatively successfully as, as primates for, you know, a couple of dozen million years. And we're transforming things pretty damn rapidly. You know, I mean, one potential outcome is that in 500 years, we're more machine than human. More human than human. Just a little, a little nod to Rob Zombie and Blade Runner. You know, and that we're not really human at all in any realistic sense. And I can't necessarily see that as a, you know, you could claim that that's a positive outcome, but it isn't necessarily that it's a positive outcome. So. You're you're assuming that there is an alignment between the two. No, I'm not doing that. And I, I okay. think, and now I'm getting a little confused about what you're claiming. So let me just go over that ground you just sketched, just to to get myself on track. So it seems to me that you're saying that the reductio ad absurdum of a Darwinian conception of knowledge would be if we ever learned certain truths that got us all killed. Well, then that would prove that these things weren't true or that this was an intellectual dead end. Yeah, they weren't true enough, I would say. I mean, two things here. One is that there's nothing about my conception of science that discounts the reality or the significance of subjectivity. So I I understand what you're saying when you say that science or materialism leaves out subjectivity. And that's, I've ridden that same hobby horse against that conception of science myself. So you won't find a friend of eliminative materialism in me. That's just not how I think about the human mind. Well, do you think that that's true of your views on consciousness? Because that's another place where I would say we radically disagree. Yeah, well, I, I don't know that you would you understand my views on consciousness if you think that, but we can get there. I think there is a subjective dimension of reality that is undeniable. In fact, and I've said, for instance, that consciousness is the one thing in this universe that can't be an illusion. I think, therefore, I am a little uh, nod to Descartes. It's the only thing that you can be absolutely sure exists at this moment, in the sense that... Uh, I actually like another claim that you make better that's, that's related to that. I think the one thing, and this is, I think, part of the, your fundamental ethical metaphysics, and it's a point on which we agree, I, I believe. You know, you, you are very concerned with, let's call it pain, for lack of a better word. And, you know, one of the conclusions that I've reached, which is... I think in keeping with what you just said, because it, it, it necessarily involves consciousness. But so let's call consciousness a reality. But then I would say that the most undeniable form of consciousness is acute agony, because no one doubts that, not if you watch them act. And that's one of the criteria by which I judge whether or not someone believes something. The most undeniable form of consciousness is acute agony. 
Uh, <laughs> I'm not necessarily denying it, but that yeah, it's, it's very that's very disturbing. For some reason, it calls to mind uh, things like Hellraiser from Beyond or something like that. But that's an uh, an interesting question or idea, and I don't know what the truth is. I'm trying to, you know, I've recently been dealing with uh, my own medical uh, issues, etc., and I think it is really true that people tend not to doubt their own suffering, you know? Um, but I'm trying to think of the most positive experiences I've ever had in my life, like really, really positive and highly pleasurable experiences. And I think those can be really poignant uh, as well, and sometimes even kind of like hyper real. So I, I don't know. You know, so people, if people act out something, uncontrollably then i'm convinced that they believe it regardless of what they think they believe and so and i think it's for that reason that so many religious systems start with the same metaphysic which is life is suffering that's the ultimate reality well that's definitely the case with buddhism at least uh, i think if i remember correctly that's the first of the four noble truths and that's that's associated with consciousness certainly but it's 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 more precise than that you know, because maybe you can doubt whether you're happy, but it's very difficult to doubt that you're in agony and have that actually work. So yeah. people act as if that's the most real thing. And part of your ethical metaphysics, as far as I can tell, is you take that as bedrock in some sense and then say, well, whatever we do, we shouldn't go there. And, you know, there's there's in a manner, in a way, the way that I think para parallels that except that you posit well-being as the um opposite let's say of suffering and this is and this is something i really want to talk to you about because i think there's a there's a paradox in your thinking and i could be wrong but let tell me what you think well, let's wait to get there because this is a different topic i, I definitely want to get okay. into morality okay. with you okay and that's all all ripe for discussion, but this conception of truth, I think we have to nail down because it just seems to me undeniable that there are facts, whether or not any of us, any existing population of human beings are aware of those facts. So before there was any understanding of the energy trapped in an atom, the energy was still trapped in the atom, right? And, and the Trinity test prove that beyond any possibility of doubt. So prior to the, you know, the bomb going off at Alamogordo, you had the, some of the world's best physicists not entirely sure what was going to happen. They had a, an educated guess about what was going to happen. I think there was a, there was a betting pool on the question of, of just how big the detonation would be. There were some people who thought that nothing would happen. They would actually fail to initiate a, a chain reaction. The point is, is that there was a kind of a probability distribution among the, the smartest people over the, the range of possible outcomes there. So this was a linguistically mediated conception of what was true at the level of the very, very small in physical reality. And we got more information once we saw that bright light and mushroom cloud. And now the conversation continues. But it seems to me that a realistic conception of what's going on there and really the only sane one, if you look long enough at it, is that our language didn't put the energy in the atom. It's not because we spoke a certain way about it 
that that determined the character of physical reality. No, physical reality has a character whether or not there are apes around to talk about it. Okay, so look, look, everything you said there, I agree with. I guess my one, my one uh, objection to that is the, well, is it true enough objection? What are you talking about, Willis? So, you know, in order to establish an objective fact, we have to parameterize the search. We have to narrow the search. We have to exclude many, many things. And I think sometimes when we do that, we end up generating a truth, and I would say it's a pragmatic truth, that works within the confines of the parameters that have been established around the experiment. Mm. But then when launched up, off into the broader world, much of which was excluded from the theorizing, the results can be catastrophic. And I would say that's akin to the problem of there's operationalization, right, where where you reduce the phenomena to something that you can discover and discuss scientifically. And then there's generalization back to the real world. And one of the things that you see happen very frequently is that the operationalization succeeds, but the generalization is a catastrophe. That's very frequently the case with the application of social science theories to the world, okay, but, because but, they leave so much out. Okay, so let's let's just focus on this claim or this concern about certain forms of knowledge or certain descriptions of the world leading to catastrophe. Now, I completely agree that that's possible, but it doesn't mean what you seem to think it means here. So it's possible for there to be scientifically correct realistically true conceptions of the world that are bad for us. There are not many examples of that. I think, right, I think right. the utility of, of knowing what's going on is usually so high that it's better to know what's going on. But for instance, I mean, the, the example I occasionally use is there is a right way to synthesize the smallpox virus right now. Is this knowledge good for anyone to have? Well, perhaps at the CDC or in, in certain labs, we want to have this knowledge because it allows us to develop an inoculation against smallpox. It allows us to, to understand viral properties in ways that perhaps we wouldn't otherwise. I don't know. I don't do that work. But it seems to me to be objectively dangerous to play around with synthesizing smallpox. And this is not the kind of knowledge that you want to spread as far and as wide right, as possible. Right. Well, right, exactly. That's the parameterization and the generalization problem. That's precisely it. Okay, but to point out that this is dangerous, to point out that it would be irresponsible to spread this knowledge, to point out that in the wrong hands, this could be catastrophic and in fact could end the human experiment, right? Mm -hmm. The career of the species. So The career of the species. I like that. It could be very anti-Darwinian to use your framing yes. in a local sense with respect to homo sapiens, because this could be the thing that kills all of us, right? Right. That's, yes, catastrophic, fine, but that doesn't undermine the scientific truth value of... But it undermines, I agree, but it, do, it does undermine the claim that scientific truth is the ultimate truth. That's the claim that it undermines. No, it doesn't undermine it epistemologically. It undermines it as something you want in your life. Right? It undermines it in terms of its value to us as a species. If knowing what is true got you all killed, well, then that would be a truth that wouldn't be worth knowing, but it wouldn't make it less true. Right? So if I say. Well, okay. So, well, that, okay. So that's, that's, okay. So let's imagine for a moment. I understand what you're saying, and, and I don't see that there's any logical problem with it. 
But I would say that we're actually starting from different fundamental axioms. <sighs> it would seem so. Like the fundamental axiom that I'm playing with is something that was basically expressed by Nietzsche. And it's a definition of truth. And so I would say, if it doesn't serve life, it's not true. I actually like Nietzsche or Nietzsche in a lot of ways. And I almost feel like I have this sentimental attachment uh, to Nietzsche. Um, but I, I wouldn't necessarily go to Nietzsche or Nietzsche, tomato, tomato, for my definition of truth. Um, I always found him very heavy on the aphorisms, which can be a good or a bad thing. But if you're looking for straightforward talk, uh, maybe not always so much. If it doesn't serve life, it's not true. Well, empirically, that's obviously bullshit. Pardon my French. Well, actually, that's not French. But, um, I mean, maybe in some ethical way, using truth once again in some airy-fairy way. But empirically, factually speaking... No, that that's not true at all. Uh, no pun intended. But that, but so what? What we're arguing about is. But what? I, okay, but Jordan, I have to pull the brakes there. I mean, I think that's. I agree morally, ethically, given my concern about the well-being of humanity. I agree with that as a moral starting point. We want to know what is worth knowing. We don't want to know everything, and we certainly don't want to know truths that will get us all killed or make us all needlessly miserable. Okay. We want good lives, right? Okay, so then I would say that you, by, by making that proposition, you've accepted the claim but that no, the scientific you, you, endeavor should be nested inside a moral endeavor. Yes, absolutely. I, I, I accept that claim, but... Well, then it can't be... Then, more, then the moral endeavor can't be grounded in the scientific endeavor because the outside thing can't... The inside thing can't ground the outside thing. Oh, man. Once again, bullshit. Uh, we can choose how we use or apply science ethically or morally, but that doesn't mean that what's true or factual scientifically is somehow subordinate or secondary to what is ethical or moral. It's logically not possible. I would disagree there, but let's talk about that when we talk about morality, because I, yeah, I think okay. that's that's a great conversation to have. But here we're still we're getting bogged down on the concept of truth. I think you can't have a concept of truth that is subordinate Sam stole my word to well-being. You want well-being, I will grant you that. And and my definition of well-being is quite expansive and it just remains to be discovered what in the end will conduce to the the greatest flourishing of minds like our own and minds beyond our own. As you say, when we integrate ourselves with with our supercomputers, who knows what beauty will experience and what meaning will be available to us. I'm interested in, in all of that. And I want, I want us all, all to survive. And I don't want to be annihilated by true facts that were dangerous to know. But, okay. So, but it seems to me then, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me, and, and believe me, this point I'm pushing is part of the reason that I got to where I got. It's exactly this issue. Because I realized that it was necessary for, for our attitude towards science to be nested in something else, which was a higher moral conception. And if, if I'm not mistaken, you just made the claim that, you know, if there are scientific things that we could mess with that might destroy us all, 
it would be better if we didn't. Okay? Yes, but better but, by what standard? We will get there, but okay, but they will be no less true. You clearly have to have a conception of facts and truth that is possible to know that exceeds what anyone currently knows and exceeds any concern about whether it is useful or compatible with your own survival even to know these truths. Okay, well, then I would say that I don't think that facts are necessarily true. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, I think I'm going to leave it there because I promise to try to keep this under the, um, the hour-long mark. And it's kind of funny. I think this interview ends, uh, it goes on for like a, almost another hour, I think. And it ends with them still arguing over the definition of true and what's factual and what isn't. And Sam brings up the example of how to tell if your spouse or determine if your spouse is cheating on you. And I think he's saying, like, there might be some ways that might leave some doubt or uncertainty uh, as to whether or not your spouse is actually cheating on you. Um, but let's say you have a private detective who takes, like, 15 pictures of uh, your wife or husband or whatever in bed with another person you know, having sex or whatever. Uh, yeah, you can't really deny it. Well, I guess in this age, Photoshop and everything else. Uh, but, you know, the, the point Sam was trying to make is that there's at some point where evidence is evidence. And, uh, and even if, say, those pictures existed, but you weren't aware of them, it wouldn't change the fact that those pictures still existed and that your spouse had really cheated on you. But it's funny, I think Jordan Pearson starts to get a little huffy around then. And, and I, I was half joking with myself, perhaps to keep my sanity, that I didn't know if it was because uh, he was just getting sick of the argument or if, or if maybe like his wife uh, cheated on him. Oh, that's a horrible thing to say. Actually, I don't even, I think he is married. I don't know. But uh, anyway, um, is it all right if I crawl back to bed now? I think I did do a half bad job. Uh, with this episode, given the fact that I am sick as the uh, proverbial dog. So yeah, you guys know the drill, Twitter, Facebook, um, YouTube. You can subscribe to the show via iTunes or Podbean. You can check out the archives on Podbean. If you want to help the show out monetarily, you can use the PayPal widget at the bottom of the Podbean page, or you can donate as little as 99 cents a month via uh, Patreon, patreon.com slash The Weekend Out. All right, brothers and sisters, uh, until next time, thanks. Thanks.